Chapters sixty one through seventy one of Against Celsus by Origen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. That Herod conspired against the child, although the Jew of Celsus does not believe that this really happened, is not to be wondered at, for wickedness is in a certain sense blind and would desire to defeat fate as if it were stronger than it. And this being Herod's condition, he both believed that a king of the Jews had been born and yet cherished a purpose contradictory of such a belief, not seeing that the child is assuredly either a king and will come to the throne, or that he is not to be a king, and that his death, therefore, will be to no purpose, he desired accordingly to kill him, his mind being agitated by contending passions on account of his wickedness, and being instigated by the blind and wicked devil, who from the very beginning plotted against the Saviour, imagining that he was and would become some mighty one. An angel, however, perceiving the course of events, intimated to Joseph, although Celsus may not believe it, that he was to withdraw with the child and his mother into Egypt, while Herod slew all the infants that were in Bethlehem and the surrounding borders, in the hope that he would thus destroy him also who had been born king of the Jews. For he saw not the sleepless guardian power that is around those who deserve to be protected and preserved for the salvation of men, of whom Jesus is the first, superior to all others in honor and excellence, who was to be a king indeed, but not in the sense that Herod supposed, but in that in which it became God to bestow a kingdom, for the benefit, viz., of those who were to be under his sway, who was to confer no ordinary and unimportant blessing, so to speak, upon his subjects, but who was to train them and to subject them to the laws that were truly from God. And Jesus, knowing this well, and denying that he was a king in the sense that the multitude expected, but declaring the superiority of his kingdom, says, quote, If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not of this world. End quote. Now if Celsus had seen this, he would not have said, quote, But if, then, this was done in order that you might not reign in his stead when you had grown to man's estate, why, after you did reach that estate, do you not become a king instead of you, the Son of God, wandering about in so mean a condition, hiding yourself through fear, and leading a miserable life up and down? End quote. Now, it is not dishonorable to avoid exposing oneself to dangers, but to guard carefully against them when this is done, not through fear of death, but from a desire to benefit others by remaining in life until the proper time come for one who has assumed human nature to die a death that will be useful to mankind. And this is plain to him who reflects that Jesus died for the sake of men, a point of which we have spoken to the best of our ability in the preceding pages. And after such statements showing his ignorance, even of the number of the apostles, he proceeds thus, quote, Jesus having gathered around him ten or eleven persons of notorious character, the very wickedest of tax-gatherers and sailors, fled in company with them from place to place, and obtained his living in a shameful and importunate manner. End quote. Let us to the best of our power see what truth there is in such a statement. It is manifest to us all who possess the gospel narratives, which Celsus does not appear even to have read, that Jesus selected twelve apostles, and that of these, Matthew alone was a tax-gatherer, 
that when he calls them indiscriminately sailors, he probably means James and John because they left their ship and their father Zebedee and followed Jesus. For Peter and his brother Andrew, who employed a net to gain their necessary subsistence, must be classed not as sailors, but as the scripture describes them, as fishermen. And Lebus also, who was a follower of Jesus, may have been a tax gatherer, but he was not of the number of apostles, except according to his statement in one of the copies of Mark's gospel. And we have not ascertained the employments of the remaining disciples by which they earned their livelihood before becoming disciples of Jesus. I assert, therefore, in answer to such statements as the above, that it is clear to all who are able to institute an intelligent and candid examination into the history of the apostles of Jesus, that it was by help of a divine power that these men taught Christianity and succeeded in leading others to embrace the word of God. For it was not any power of speaking or any orderly arrangement of their message according to the arts of the Gretchen dialects or rhetoric, which was in them the effective cause of converting their hearers. Nay, I am of the opinion that if Jesus had selected some individuals who were wise according to the apprehension of the multitude, and who were fitted both to think and speak so as to please them, and had used such as the ministers of his doctrine, he would must justly have been suspected of employing artifices, like those philosophers who are the leaders of certain sects, and consequently the promise respecting the divinity of his doctrine would not have manifested itself. For had the doctrine and the preaching consisted in the persuasive utterance and arrangement of words, then faith also, like that of the philosophers of the world in their opinions, would have been through the wisdom of men and not through the power of God. Now, who is there, on seeing fishermen and tax-gatherers, who had not acquired even the merest elements of learning, as the gospel relates of them, and in respect to which Celsus believes that they speak the truth, inasmuch as it is their own ignorance which they record, discoursing boldly not only among the Jews of faith in Jesus, but also preaching him with success among other nations, would not inquire whence they derived this power of persuasion, as theirs was certainly not the common method followed by the multitude. And who would not say that the promise, quote, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, end quote, had been accomplished by Jesus in the history of his apostles by a sort of divine power. And to this also, Paul referring in terms of commendation, as we have stated a little above, says, quote, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, end quote. For according to the predictions in the prophets foretelling the preaching of the gospel, Quote, the Lord gave the word in great power to them who preached it, even the king of the powers of the beloved, end quote, in order that the prophecy might be fulfilled, which said, quote, his word shall run very swiftly, end quote. And we see that, quote, the voice of the apostles of Jesus has gone forth into all the earth and their words to the end of the world, end quote. On this account are they who hear the word powerfully proclaimed, filled with power, which they manifest both by their dispositions and their lives, and by struggling even to death on behalf of the truth, while some are altogether empty, although they profess to believe in God through Jesus, inasmuch as not possessing any divine power, they have the appearance only of being converted to the word of God. And although I have previously mentioned a gospel declaration uttered by the Savior, I shall nevertheless quote it again, 
as appropriate to the present occasion, as it confirms both the divine manifestation of our Savior's foreknowledge regarding the preaching of his gospel and the power of his word, which without the aid of teachers gains the mastery over those who yield their assent to persuasion accompanied with divine power. And the words of Jesus referred to are, quote, The harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. End quote. And since Celsus has termed the apostles of Jesus men of infamous notoriety, saying that they were tax gatherers and sailors and the vilest characters, we have to remark, with respect to this charge, that he seems, in order to bring an accusation against Christianity, to believe the gospel accounts only where he pleases, and to express his disbelief of them, in order that he may not be forced to admit the manifestations of divinity related in these same books. Whereas, one who sees the spirit of truth by which the writers are influenced ought, from their narration of things of inferior importance, to believe also the account of divine things. Now, in the general epistle of Barnabas, from which, perhaps, Celsus took the statement that the apostles were notoriously wicked men, it is recorded that, quote, Jesus selected his own apostles as persons who were more guilty of sin than all other evildoers, end quote. And in the gospel, according to Luke, Peter says to Jesus, quote, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man, end quote. Moreover, Paul, who himself also at a later time became an apostle of Jesus, says in his epistle to Timothy, quote, This is a faithful saying, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief, end quote. And I do not know how Celsus should have forgotten or not have thought of saying something about Paul, the founder, after Jesus, of the churches that are in Christ. He saw, probably, that anything he might say about that apostle would require to be explained, in consistency with the fact that, after being a persecutor of the church of God and a bitter opponent of believers, who went so far even as to deliver over the disciples of Jesus to death, so great a change afterwards passed over him, that he preached the gospel of Jesus from Jerusalem round about Elycrium, and was ambitious to carry the glad tidings where he needed not to build upon another man's foundation, but to places where the gospel of God in Christ had not been proclaimed at all. What absurdity, therefore, is there if Jesus, desiring to manifest to the human race the power which he possessed to heal souls, should have selected notorious and wicked men, and should have raised them to such a degree of moral excellence that they became a pattern of the purest virtue to all who were converted by their instrumentality to the gospel of Christ. But if we were to reproach those who have been converted with their former lives, then we would have occasion to accuse Phaedo also, even after he became a philosopher, since, as the history relates, he was drawn away by Socrates from a house of bad fame to the pursuits of philosophy. Nay, even the licentious life of Polemo, the successor of Xenocrates, will be a subject of reproach to philosophy, whereas, even in these instances, we ought to regard it as a ground of praise, that reasoning was enabled by the persuasive power of these men to convert from the practice of such vices those who had been formerly entangled by them. Now, among the Greeks there was only one Phaedo, I know not if there were a second, and one Polemo, 
who betook themselves to philosophy after a licentious and most wicked life while jesus there were not only at the time we speak of the twelve disciples but many more at all times who becoming a band of temperate men speak in the following terms of their former lives quote, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish disobedient deceived serving diverse lusts and pleasures living in malice and envy hateful and hating one another but after that the kindness and love of god our savior towards man appeared by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the holy ghost which he shed upon us richly end quote, we became such as we are for quote, god sent forth his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions end quote. as the prophet taught in the book of psalms and in addition to what has been already said i would add the following that chrysippus in his treatise on the cure of the passions in his endeavours to restrain the passions of the human soul not pretending to determine what opinions are true ones says that according to the principles of the different sects are those to be cured who have been brought under the dominion of the passions and continues quote, and if pleasure be an end then by it must the passions be healed and if there be three kinds of chief blessings still according to this doctrine it is in the same way that those are to be freed from their passions who are under their dominion whereas the assailants of christianity do not see in how many persons the passions have been brought under restraint and the flood of wickedness checked and savage manners softened by the means of the gospel so that it well became those who are ever boasting of their zeal for the public good to make a public acknowledgment of their thanks to that doctrine which by a new method led men to abandon many vices and to bear their testimony at least to it that even though not the truth it has at all events been productive of benefit to the human race and since jesus in teaching his disciples not to be guilty of rashness gave them the precept quote, if they persecute you in this city flee ye into another and if they persecute you in the other flee again into a third end quote. to which teaching he added the example of a consistent life acting so as not to expose himself to danger rashly or unseasonably or without good grounds from this celsus takes occasion to bring a malicious and slanderous accusation the jew whom he brings forward saying to jesus quote, in company with your disciples you go and hide yourselves in different places End quote. now similar to what has thus been made the ground of a slanderous charge against jesus and his disciples do we say was the conduct recorded of aristotle this philosopher seeing that a court was about to be summoned to try him on the ground of his being guilty of impiety on account of certain of his philosophical tenets which the athenians regarded as impious withdrew from athens and fixed his school in chalcis defending his course of procedure to his friends by saying quote, let us depart from athens that we may not give the athenians a handle for incurring guilt a second time as formerly in the case of socrates and so prevent them from committing a second act of impiety against philosophy End quote. he further says quote, that jesus went about with his disciples and obtained his livelihood in a disgraceful and importunate manner End quote. let him show wherein lay the disgraceful and importunate element in their manner of subsidence 
for it is related in the gospels that there were certain women who had been healed of their diseases among whom also was susanna who from their own possessions afforded disciples the means of support and who is there among philosophers that when devoting himself to the service of his acquaintances is not in the habit of receiving from them what is needful for his wants or is it only in them that such acts are proper and becoming but when the disciples of jesus do the same they are accused by celsus of obtaining their livelihood by disgraceful importunity and in addition to the above this jew of celsus afterwards addresses jesus quote, what need moreover was there that you while still an infant should be conveyed into egypt was it to escape being murdered but then it was not likely that a god should be afraid of death and yet an angel came down from heaven commanding you and your friends to flee lest ye should be captured and put to death and was not the great god who had already sent two angels on your account able to keep you his only son there in safety End quote. from these words celsus seems to think that there was no element of divinity in the human body and soul of jesus but that his body was not even such as is described in the fables of homer and with a taunt also at the blood of jesus which was shed upon the cross he adds that it was not quote, icker such as flows in the veins of the blessed gods end quote. we now believing jesus himself when he says respecting his divinity i am the way and the truth and the life end quote, and employs other terms of similar import and when he says respecting his being clothed with a human body quote, and now ye seek to kill me a man that hath told you the truth End quote, conclude that he was a kind of compound being and so it became him who was making provision for his sojourning in the world as a human being not to expose himself unseasonably to the danger of death and in like manner it was necessary that he should be taken away by his parents acting under the instructions of an angel from heaven who communicated to them the divine will saying on the first occasion quote, joseph thou son of david fear not to take unto thee mary thy wife for that which is conceived in her is of the holy ghost End quote. and on the second quote, arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into egypt and be thou there until i bring thee word for herod will seek the young child to destroy him End quote. now what is recorded in these words appears to me to be not at all marvellous for in either passage of scripture it is stated that it was in a dream that the angel spoke these words and that in a dream certain persons may have certain things pointed out to them to do is an event of frequent occurrence to many individuals the impression on the mind being produced either by an angel or by some other thing where then is the absurdity in believing that he who had once become incarnate should be led also by human guidance to keep out of the way of dangers not indeed from any impossibility that it should be otherwise but from the moral fitness that ways and means should be made used to ensure the safety of jesus and it was certainly better that the child jesus should escape the snare of herod and should reside with his parents in egypt until the death of the conspirator then the divine providence should hinder the free will of herod in his wish to put the child to death or that the fabled poetic helmet of hades should have been employed or anything of a similar kind done with respect to jesus or that they who came to destroy him should have been smitten with blindness like the people of sodom 
for the sending of help to him in a very miraculous and unnecessarily public manner would not have been of any service to him who wished to show that as a man to whom witness was borne by god he possessed within that form which was seen by the eyes of men some higher element of divinity that which was properly the son of god god the word the power of god and the wisdom of god he who is called christ but this is not a suitable occasion for discussing the composite nature of the incarnate jesus the investigation into such a subject being for believers so to speak a sort of private question after the above this jew of celsus as if he were a greek who loved learning and were well instructed in greek literature continues quote, the old mythological fables which attributed a divine origin to perseus and amphion and aeacus and minos were not believed by us nevertheless that they might not appear unworthy of credit they represented the deeds of those personages as great and wonderful and truly beyond the power of man but what hast thou done that is noble or wonderful either in deed or in word thou hast made no manifestation to us although they challenged you in the temple to exhibit some unmistakable sign that you were the son of god in reply to which we have to say let the greeks show to us among those who have been enumerated any one whose deeds have been marked by a utility and splendor extending to after generations and which have been so great as to produce a belief in the fables which represented them as of divine descent but these greeks can show us nothing regarding those men of whom they speak which is even inferior by a great degree to what jesus did unless they take us back to their fables and histories wishing us to believe them without any reasonable grounds and to discredit the gospel accounts even after the clearest evidence for we assert that the whole habitable world contains evidence of the works of jesus in the existence of those churches of god which have been founded through him by those who have been converted from the practice of innumerable sins and the name of jesus can still remove distractions from the minds of men and expel demons and also take away diseases and produce a marvellous meekness of spirit and complete change of character and a humanity and goodness and gentleness in those individuals who do not feign themselves to be christians for the sake of subsistence or the supply of any mortal wants but who have honestly accepted the doctrine concerning god in christ and the judgment to come but after this celsus having a suspicion that the great works performed by jesus of which we have named a few out of a great number would be brought forward to view effects to grant that those statements may be true which are made regarding his cures or his resurrection or the feeding of a multitude with a few loaves from which many fragments remained over or those other stories which celsus thinks the disciples have recorded as of a marvellous nature and he adds quote, well let us believe that these were actually wrought by you but then he immediately compares them to the tricks of jugglers who profess to do more wonderful things and to the feats performed by those who have been taught by egyptians who in the middle of the market-place in return for a few obols will impart the knowledge of their most venerated arts and will expel demons from men and dispel diseases and invoke the souls of heroes and exhibit expensive banquets and tables and dishes and dainties having no real existence and who will put in motion as if alive 
what are not really living animals, but which have only the appearance of life. And he asks, quote, Since, then, these persons can perform such feats, shall we, of necessity, conclude that they are sons of God? Or must we admit that they are the proceedings of wicked men under the influence of an evil spirit? End quote. You see that by these expressions he allows, as it were, the existence of magic. I do not know, however, if he is the same who wrote several books against it, but, as it helped his purpose, he compares the miracles related of Jesus to the results produced by magic. There would, indeed, be a resemblance between them if Jesus, like the dealers in magical arts, had performed his works only for show, but now there is not a single juggler who, by means of his proceedings, invites his spectators to reform their manners, or trains those to the fear of God who are amazed at what they see, nor who tries to persuade them so to live as men who are to be justified by God. And jugglers do none of these things, because they have neither the power, nor the will, nor any desire to busy themselves about the reformation of men, inasmuch as their own lives are full of the grossest and most notorious sins. But how should not he who, by the miracles which he did, induced those who beheld the excellent results to undertake the reformation of their characters, manifest himself not only to his genuine disciples, but also to others as a pattern of most virtuous life, in order that his disciples might devote themselves to the work of instructing men in the will of God, and that the others, after being more fully instructed by his word and character than by his miracles, as to how they were to direct their lives, might in all their conduct have a constant reference to the good pleasure of the universal God. And if such were the life of Jesus, how could any one with reason compare him with the sect of impostors, and not, on the contrary, believe, according to the promise that he was God who appeared in human form to do good to our race? After this, Celsus, confusing together the Christian doctrine and the opinions of some heretical sect, and bringing them forward as charges that were applicable to all who believe in the divine word, says, quote, such a body as yours could not have belonged to God, end quote. Now in answer to this, we have to say that Jesus, on entering into the world, assumed as one born of a woman a human body and one which was capable of suffering a natural death, for which reason, in addition to others, we say that he was also a great wrestler, having on account of his human body been tempted in all respects like other men, but no longer as men with sin as a consequence, but being altogether without sin. For it is distinctly clear to us that, quote, he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, and as one who knew no sin, end quote, God delivered him up as pure for all who had sin. Then, Celsus says, Quote, the body of God would not have been so generated as you, O Jesus, were. End quote. He saw, besides, that if, as it is written, had been born, his body somehow might be even more divine than that of the multitude, and in a certain sense, a body of God. But he disbelieves the accounts of his conception by the Holy Ghost, and believes that he was begotten by one Panthera, who corrupted the Virgin, quote, because a god's body would not have been so generated as you were, end quote. 
but we have spoken on these matters at greater length in the preceding pages. He asserts, moreover, that, quote, the body of a god is not nourished with such food as was that of Jesus, end quote, since he is able to prove from the gospel narratives both that he was partook of food and food of a particular kind, well, be it so. Let him assert that he ate the Passover with his disciples when he not only used the words, quote, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you, end quote, but also actually partook of the same. And let him say also that he experienced the sensation of thirst beside the well of Jacob and drank of the water of the well. In what respect do these facts militate against what we have said respecting the nature of his body? Moreover, it appears indubitable that after his resurrection he ate a piece of fish, for, according to our view, he assumed a true body as one born of a woman. But, objects Celsus, quote, the body of a god does not make use of such a voice as that of Jesus, nor employ such a method of persuasion as he, end quote. These are, indeed, trifling and altogether contemptible objections, for our reply to him will be that he who is believed among the Greeks to be a god, viz. the Pythian and Didymene Apollo, makes use of such a voice for his Pythian priestess at Delphi and for his prophetess at Miletus, and yet neither the Pythian nor Didymene is charged by the Greeks with not being a god, nor any other Gretchen deity whose worship is established in one place, and it was far better, surely, that a god should employ a voice which, on account of its being uttered with power, should produce an indescribable sort of persuasion in the minds of the hearers. Continuing to pour abuse upon Jesus as one who, on account of his impiety and wicked opinions, was, so to speak, hated by God, he asserts that, quote, these tenets of his were those of a wicked and God-hated sorcerer, end quote. And yet, if the name and the thing be properly examined, it will be found an impossibility that man should be hated by God, seeing that God loves all existing things and, quote, hateth nothing of what he has made, end quote. For he created nothing in a spirit of hatred. And if certain expressions in the prophets convey such an impression, they are to be interpreted in accordance with the general principle by which scripture employs such language with regard to God, as if he were subject to human affections. But what reply need to be made to him, who, while professing to bring forward credible statements, thinks himself bound to make use of calumnies and slanders against Jesus, as if he were a wicked sorcerer? Such is not the procedure of one who seeks to make good his case, but of one who is in an ignorant and unphilosophic state of mind, inasmuch as the proper course is to state the case and candidly to investigate it, and, according to the best of his ability, to bring forward what occurs to him with regard to it. But as the Jew of Celsus has, with the above remarks, brought to a close his charges against Jesus, so we also shall here bring to a termination the contents of our first book in reply to him. And if God bestow the gift of that truth which destroys all falsehood agreeably to the words of the prayer, quote, cut them off in thy truth, end quote, we shall begin 
in what follows the consideration of a second appearance of the jew in which he is represented by celsus as addressing those who have become converts to jesus end of against celsus book one by origin translated by frederick crombie read by david ronald